I'm going to ask you to join me by taking a Bible and let's turn together to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 3. And we're turning to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be reading beginning at verse 1 through the end of verse 17. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. This is God's word. Before we pray this morning and ask for God's gracious help, I want you to see a picture of the fifth most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus, the country of Pakistan. 197 million people live in Pakistan, and of that 197 million, 4 million are Christians. And these Christians are living under Islamic oppression. And interestingly, the greatest source of danger to these believers comes from their family. Because when you deconvert from Islam and convert to Christianity, it is considered in Islam as a cause for shame, shame to the family. And so I want us to pray this morning, and, and this is just helping us remember that God's family is much bigger than broader than just us. And so let's pray today. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. We thank you for your great work that even in some of the most difficult places in the world, the church is present. 
And we pray that you would help them as us to be salt and light where they are because they are salt and light as they know you as their Savior. And so we pray for their strength and the upbuilding of their faith. We especially pray for the safety and protection for Christian women and girls who live under the constant threat of abduction, rape, and forced marriages. This should not be so. We ask for your gracious help for them. And may they today be built up in their faith as we, as we hear the word of God, ministered to us by the spirit of the living God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The year was 1945. Harry S. Truman was president. And he was facing a very difficult task. The Japanese were continuing to be a problem. A solution was put forth to drop an atomic bomb. In fact, two of them, one in Hiroshima, the other in Nagasaki. Harry S. Truman had just become president as a result of the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it was up to him to make the decision. And you might imagine that that had to be difficult. Harry Truman has long since been dead. We don't have the opportunity to ask him, hey, what, was, what were you dealing with? What were you facing? Thank God for his biographer, David McCullough. He wrote a masterful biography on the life of Harry S. Truman. And he said in his biography that on June 6, 1945, Harry S. Truman wrote this in his diary. Have been going through some very hectic days, I bet. Then he said, that he knew, he realized that his decision would inflict damage and casualties, quote, beyond imagination. We would not know this had it not been for a biography. Why is it a good idea to read biographies? I hope, I hope you read biographies. I hope you do. But why is it a good idea to read biographies? Well, one reason is it that they provide valuable lessons for us in life. They're instructive to know how other people, whether they were famous or non-famous, how they handled the crisis of their lives or how they found their life's mates or how they raised their families or how they pursued their careers. Biographies are valuable lessons for us in life. And I say all of this because beginning today, and over the next few Sundays, we're going to look at some biblical biographies. For example, next Sunday, we're going to look at the biography of a woman named Delilah. Interesting character. Followed the next Sunday by Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the Christian church era in the book of Acts. That will be followed by a convert by the name of Lydia found in the book of Acts. But today, today we're looking at biography of a man named Cain. Now, it's, it's inescapable. When you bring up Cain, it's inescapable. You will hear the question, who was Cain's wife? Who was Cain's wife? He had a wife, obviously. We read in verse 17 that Cain knew his wife. But the big question, who was Cain's wife? Now, oftentimes that's asked in a legitimate fashion. But oftentimes it's asked for a gotcha moment, like, who's Gaines' wife? Yeah, answer that. Yeah. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, is that a problem? No. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of things. For example, the Bible doesn't tell us how old Cain was when this happened. 
The Bible doesn't tell us what the mark of Cain was. Though many people have speculated, the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of things, but it tells us some things that are extremely important. The Bible tells us about the fall. The Bible tells us about creation, the fall, and redemption. But along the way, there's a lot of details that we just don't know. But that shouldn't be a problem for us. Because here's the way I think about it. We're told that if we believe in our heart that God raised Christ from the dead, we shall be saved. Now, I tell you what, God raising Christ from from the dead is a much bigger deal (laughs) than who Cain's wife was. Really. Because if God didn't raise Christ from the dead, what difference does it make who Cain's wife was? But who was Cain's wife? The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us this, that God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and increase in number. Therefore, the logical implication is that Cain married either a sister or a niece. Because when we read in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, we find that Cain had sisters. Now, immediately people will say, oh my goodness, that's disgusting, that's incest. But but remember, genetic imperfections accumulated gradually over time. Therefore, there was no prohibition against incest in the earliest stages of human civilization. So it's most likely that Cain married one of his sisters or a niece. But we know this for sure. He did not get his wife through Match.com. Pretty sure of that. Here's something more important. We must not forget what preceded Genesis chapter 4. We need to know what happened prior to this because it's really important. And you'll remember Adam and Eve had rejected God's way and had fallen for the temptation to be like God, knowing good and evil. We found that in chapter 3. And so here's the question. What will life be like in a world that has rejected its maker? Because that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We see a world falling, rejecting its maker. What is it going to be like to live in a world that's rejected its maker? Genesis 4 begins the answer. And while there's a lot that we could look at, you know, a lot of speculation, uh, you know, again, what is, um, what is the mark of Cain? You know, we, a lot of things we could talk about. Uh, here's what I want to narrow it down to. I want to look at Cain's insincere worship, Cain's unrepentant heart and Cain's unbearable guilt. Those three things. So first, Cain's insincere worship. You find it in verses 3 through 4. Both Cain and his brother Abel, we find them bringing offerings to the Lord. Now let's stop there for a moment. What does that mean? You know, we just took up an offering a moment ago, but we have to go back to the Old Testament And remember what emerges in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we begin to find offerings. And the word offering here is the Hebrew word tribute. So it was a tribute offering, which meant that it was a thanksgiving offering. In other words, Cain and Abel were bringing a thanks offering where the giver humbly acknowledges the superiority and the rule of of the receiver. Now think about that. Cain and Abel are bringing a tribute to the living God. And in doing so, it is, it is designed to be a thanks offering to humbly acknowledge that God, you are the ruler, you are the provider, you are superior in every way to us. We need you. We depend upon you. 
So, both Cain and Abel are bringing a tribute, but something strange happens in verses 4 and 5. We find that God accepts Cain and his offering, but he rejects, I'm sorry, he, 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 he accepts Abel and his offering, but he rejects Cain and his offering. Now, why does that happen? Why does God decide to accept one person and their offering and reject the other? See, that ought to be really an interesting question to ask. That's important. Now, now some have pointed to an answer and said, well, it's the offerings. It's the offerings. You know, Abel brought his best offering and Cain didn't. Abel brought a blood offering and Cain didn't. Okay, but that begs an even deeper question. Why? Why didn't Cain bring a better offering? Why didn't he? Why didn't he bring in a more appropriate offering? Why didn't he do it? We're not told here in Genesis chapter 4. Again, something we're not told here, but we know the answer because the Holy Spirit provides it for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Notice what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now, what do we notice right away that we did not know in Genesis chapter 4? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith. What does that mean? It means an attitude of trust. Abel came to God trusting God. He came in faith. So Abel's tribute, listen, Abel's tribute was an outward expression of an inner trust in God. In other words, he made his faith visible by offering a tribute offering, and acknowledging humbly, God, you are the ruler, you are superior, I need you, I trust you. So now, we're, we're, we're in a better position to answer this question. Why did God not accept Cain's offering? Because it was not offered in faith. Cain did not trust God. Abel was responding to God in a different manner than Cain. You need to see that. See, remember, again, this was an offering where the giver is humbly acknowledging. There's, there's a, it's a heart attitude, a, a heart that acknowledges humbly, you are superior. You are the ruler. In his heart, Cain was not making that acknowledgement. Ah, oh, but you say, wait a minute. He did bring an offering? Good grief, let's cut this guy some slack. He did bring a tribute offering. Well... Is that good enough? Now remember, God did not accept him and his offering. But we see him bringing an offering. So what's going on here? It's called tokenism. Tokenism. In other words, while Cain looks religious, he is only making a symbolic effort. He is only going through the motions. His heart is not in it. That's the difference between Cain and Abel. They're both bringing offerings. One has a heart that's in it, trusting the living God. The other is just mere tokenism. Maybe you will 
be helped by this. Let me ask you this question. Why are you here today? Really, why are you here today? Now, some will immediately say, I want to be. I want to be here, preacher. I want to be here, and I want to gather with God's people. I'm one of God's people. I want to worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to be here. I know how bad I need regular, consistent worship with God's people. I want to be here. And while that is most likely the case for many, there's always a possibility, the likelihood, that when someone is asked, why are you here today, down deep, they will say, I just don't want to go through the hassle. I don't want to argue with my spouse about it. I just come. I don't want to argue with my parents. I just come. But I don't want to be here. I'm here because of her. I'm here because of him. I'm not here because of me. In other words, in your heart, you're saying, if it were not for blank, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be any church. Now, misunderstand, don't misunderstand me. I'm glad you're here no matter, no matter what the reason is. I'm only making a point here. We can go through a religious motion and our heart not be in it. In other words, it's not accompanied by faith. It's not accompanied by genuine trust. And this is what Cain did, and God knew it. And friend, there's not been a person that has ever lived a token type of way that God doesn't know it. Cain's worship was insincere. But secondly, we want to see Cain's unrepentant heart. Did you notice that Cain's response to God's rejecting his offering was anger? Now, let's be clear here. He was angry at God. Let's be clear. Because, you see, there's nothing that irks us more than the suggestion that we cannot set the terms of our own approach to God or decide for ourselves how we will live. I mean, really, when you think about it, there's nothing that gets under our skin more than to think, that someone is telling us how to live. You can tell me how to live. I'll live the way I want to live. It's my life. Or, you know, I've, I've occasionally you know, come across some people and the opportunity was there where they say, you know, I've been praying or would you pray? And I say, do, do, you, do you know God? Oh, well, yeah, I know God. But do you know him through his son, Jesus Christ? Well, I, well yeah. It's almost like, well, how dare you? I can pray. I can pray whatever way I want to pray. It doesn't matter about all that stuff. It does, really. It does. In other words, we can't approach God just any way we want to. If there's anything we see in this biography of Cain, we can't just go to God any way we want to. It must be prescribed for us. But amazingly, even though Cain is angry at God, God comes to him. Now, friends, don't miss this. There's little things like this that teach us so much about God. Cain brings this insincere offering. His heart's not in it. And he has the nerve to get ticked off at God. Yet God mercifully comes to him and begins to try to tease out some things. See, here's what concerns me at this point. You might be here today and you might be angry at God. I've been thinking about this all week, especially when I read in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Why is your countenance fallen? And what that means is, is not only was Cain angry, he was deeply depressed. There's something going on here between him and God. 
And I, I, I'm really concerned that you, there may be some of you here today that just, I mean, I'm talking about in the dark recesses of your heart. You'd never, you'd never say it to anybody, but it's there. Why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? Why didn't God answer my prayer here? Why, why, why? And, and, and you, you have distanced yourself. You're here. Cain, Cain was there. Cain came with his offering. He was angry, depressed. And then God generously, mercifully trying to tease out of Cain, help him to see, why are you angry? And then he says in verse 7, this is interesting, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Or, or, or you could say it like this, if you do right, will you not be accepted? Now here's where you need to ask a question. What does it mean to do well or to do right? What, what, what does God mean in the context here? Cain, if you'll do right, if you do well, you'll be accepted. And what he means is this, Cain, if you will worship me in a right way, if you will come to me in faith, if you will come to me in the right way, you'll be accepted or you'll be lifted up. See, Cain has fallen and God is giving Cain a gracious offer, a gracious solution to his problem, a way back to favor. Even though he's angry, even though he's turned his back, even though his worship has been insincere up until this point, God is being gracious to him, coming to him. Cain, if you do right, will you not be accepted? But if Cain would not do what is right, we find in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. If Cain refused to do what was right, if Cain refused to worship God in the right way, God said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's ready to pounce. This is, a, this is an amazing picture of sin. It's the first place in the scripture where the word sin is used. And we're given this description. You know, we think we, we often think of sin in different ways, but God helps us to see that sin is hiding. It's like a lion hiding out in the weeds and you come out the door and you don't see it. And you just kind of carelessly walking around in life and all of a sudden, whoo, pounce. Cain, sin is crouching at the door. What is, what is God trying to say to Cain and to us? That sin is out of sight so often and we can't see it. Oh, we see the obvious sins. But it's the sin that we don't see. It's the worst things in your life. It's the character flaws and sins that make people around you miserable. Your spouse has tried to tell you. You won't listen. It's the things, it's the things that you're in denial about. You're just waiting to pounce. And they did. Instead of repenting and in spite of God's mercy toward Cain, he nurses his anger. He keeps nursing it. He will not repent. Even though God has come to him kindly, graciously, he will not repent. And sin does indeed pounce. Because what do we see next? Jealousy and resentment toward his brother Abel, which is followed by then fratricide, the murder of his brother. And think about this with me. Perhaps for Cain, he was attacking the thing most like God he could get his hands on because Abel bore the image of God just like you and I do. And, and, and Cain was, was angry at God. And so he, ta he attacked the thing most like God he could get his hands on 
And not only does Cain become the first murderer, he becomes the first unrepentant sinner. Which leads to one final thing, Cain's unbearable guilt. Even after Cain murders his brother, God comes to him again. Friends, this, this, this ought to, I mean, you know, if anything you go with the, away with today, it's just this fresh picture of God. After, after Cain has murdered his brother, God comes to him again in mercy. Yet Cain hardened his heart even more. In verses 11 through 12, God pronounces a curse upon Cain. He is to be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. And then in verse 13, I want you to look at it with me. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment, my guilt, my guilt is greater than I can bear. And then in verse 16, we see a picture of alienation from God and a life of restlessness, the very land of nod, the land of wandering. It's a, it's a determination. It's a man. It's a person's determination to reject God and go his own way. That's what you see in verse 16. Verse 16 is a result of insincere worship unrepentant heart, alienation from God and a life of restlessness. But I want us to focus the next few minutes on this one thing, Cain's unbearable guilt. Stephen Tyler is a lead singer for Aerosmith and he's getting on up in years now and wrote an autobiography a few years ago where he talked about a time when he was 25 years old. He had a living girlfriend she became pregnant. They both talked it over and decided, you know, look, you know, we're probably not going to stay together. It'd be terrible for the child. And so they decided to abort the child. They went to the abortion clinic, and Stephen Tyler said that he witnessed it all. And here's what he said. Now, this is years later. This is years later. He said, in my mind, I'm going, Jesus, what have I done? Unbearable guilt. E- even years later. I was reading about one of the engineers of the the, the the spacecraft, the Challenger. And he was, he was among other engineers. They were pleading with NASA, don't, don't, don't launch. Don't launch. Don't launch. He told his wife, something bad's going to happen. Don't launch. We got problems. We need to settle these problems. They launched anyway. Lives were lost. To this day, to this day, he has eat up with unbearable guilt. And, and, you know, you might be here. You might be listening. You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a religious person. Yet I have found that non-religious persons, they have guilt too. They have unbearable guilt and they don't know what to do with it. They, they have decided, I don't believe there's a God. And, and so they still have, in spite of the rejection of God and spiritual matters, they, they still have unbearable guilt. Cain said, my guilt is unbearable. And I want to suggest to you today that we should be able to relate to this. We should be able to relate to this. In fact, I'll go as far as say this. If you can't relate to this, you may not be a Christian. If you, if you can't relate, if you cannot relate to a guilt, the kind of guilt that comes and you say like Cain, I can't bear this, you may not be a Christian. Now, you may attend church and you may do churchy things, but you may not be a Christian. 
What I'm saying is this. Has this ever landed on you? Has conviction of sin, in other words, outside of Christ, has it ever landed upon you how you stand before God? Because, friend, we are all guilty. Outside of Christ, we are all guilty. We all have an unbearable guilt that we cannot bear. How do we know this? Romans chapter 3 is very clear. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But preacher, I don't, I don't, I don't feel this way. Listen, our guilt is not simply an emotion. I'm not surprised I run into people who, I don't care what you say, I don't feel guilty. Our guilt is not simply an emotion. It is an objective reality before God the judge. Simple as that. Whether you feel it or not. But if you haven't felt the weight of alienation from God, if you haven't been convicted of your sin, it is quite likely that you're not even a Christian. Again, you may be religious. You may do religious stuff. See, Cain is right. It's a guilt he cannot bear, and neither can we. We, we, we may push it and push it and push it and push it back, but you know it's there, and we can't bear it. It has such an incredible weight to it that someone else has to bear it for us. It's a weight. It's a weight that not, not, not that I can get my hand on. You, you help. I'll get my hand on it. You get your hand on it, and we'll deal with it. No. It's a weight that is unbearable on our part. Cain is right. Guilt's unbearable. But look at verse 10 with me, and let's bring this to a close. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother is Abel. Your brother's blood is crying to me. From the ground. Huh. Boy, I've, I've bled before and I've never heard it do a thing. Abel's blood was crying out to God. What does that mean? We would not know if it were not for the Holy Spirit who tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. You'll see it. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That verse is big. It's important. What, what does all of it mean? It means this. Abel was an innocent, righteous man who died unjustly. And the cry of his blood actually caught the ear of God. And it resulted in a curse upon Cain and his banishment from the presence of God. He was cut off from the very source of life. Why? Because Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and punishment. And it fell upon Cain. But Jesus, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, what's that mean? Well, Jesus was also an innocent, righteous man who died unjustly. However, however, Jesus was sinless. And Jesus shed his blood in the capacity of being purposefully sent from God the Father to be a mediator between him and us. 
See, there's similarities between Jesus and Cain, but the similarities break down when we see that Jesus was sinless and he shed his blood in the capacity of being a mediator. See, Jesus not only bore our sin, he bore our guilt on the cross and rose for our justification. His blood spoke better because it spoke not of vengeance and judgment. His blood spoke of pardon and reconciliation to make a way back for sinners like me and you who worshiped wrong, who worshiped insincerely. How does all of this apply to us? Well, let me wrap it up this way. I said at the beginning, biographies provide valuable life lessons. And what do we learn about the biography of Cain? We learn this and we must never forget. Insincere worship of God in an unrepentant heart will leave us with a guilt we cannot bear, cut off from the very presence of God. We need to know that. Insincere worship, disordered worship, unrepentant heart will leave us with a guilt we cannot bear on our own and will result in being cut off from the very presence of God. But God comes to us today. Same God who came to Cain, he comes to us today. He comes to us through his word, by his spirit. And what does he do? He comes to us today and he asks us questions. What are you here for today? What do you give your offerings for? He calls us to examine our worship. Is it real? Is it genuine? Is it in spirit and in truth? He calls upon us to do right and repent if we're not doing right. God is here today. He is speaking to us today through the biography of Cain, by his spirit. Do right, do right. Worship him rightly. Worship him in spirit and in truth. And above all, look to Jesus Christ who bore our sin and our guilt that we might be reconciled to God, the very source of life.